what is just not what we can harvest from ecosystems and ecosystem services or what sustainability is. You'll extract as much as you can so the system of point collapse. But the tribal perspective very much as people and having reciprocity for the relations is human services for ecosystems. And changing that narrative that you often got at some of my college courses about, you know, environmentalism, humans have only done death and destruction and degradation and this and that. And it's like, well, so where's the positive relationship that humans can have with the environment? Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who wants to shift from relationships of extraction to those of reciprocity with both place and people. I'm Michelle Volner, and today we're talking traditional ecological knowledge with Frank Lake, whose voice you just heard. In this episode, we discuss mutualistic relationships between indigenous Californians and the land, traditional burning, oak orchards, the powerful ways indigenous and western knowledges can come together, common misconceptions about pre-colonial California, and how we can move from a mental model of scarcity to cultivating a shared abundance that leaves no one behind. Before you get started on this episode, I want you to know that we cover a lot of vitally important but very challenging topics in this conversation. We discuss the history of indigenous people in California, which includes genocide, forced removal, enslavement, and many more injustices. There is a lot of hope in this conversation, but parts of it may be triggering for some individuals. Please be the guardian of your own mental and emotional health as you decide how and whether to move forward with this episode. I also want to remind you that this is episode 11 out of 12 in season 3. After the next episode on tide pools, I'll be taking a break to head out into the field and interview some truly wonderful folks on some of your favorite species and landscapes in California. If you want to support my ability to get into the field for those interviews and keep bringing important information for free to all Californians and lovers of California ecology, I hope you'll consider becoming a patron for as little as $4 a month. That $4 helps more than you know as I create the podcast and gets you lots of extras like being the first to know which interviews are coming up, a patrons-only book club, and bonus audio from select interviews. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash michellefulner. That's Michelle with two L's, and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. If you want to see what my face looks like, see my videos featuring California species and naturalist vocabulary, or keep track of my adventures during the podcast break, you can follow me on Instagram or TikTok at Golden State Naturalist. Podcast merch is available at goldenstatenaturalist.com. But now, let's get to the episode. Dr. Frank Lake is a research ecologist and tribal liaison with the U.S. Forest Service, who earned his B.S. in integrated ecology and culture with a minor in Native American studies from UC Davis, and his Ph.D. in environmental sciences ecology from Oregon State University. Frank has authored and co-authored numerous papers on ecology, indigenous burning, and traditional ecological knowledge, as well as the chapter on First Peoples in the Klamath Mountains, A Natural History. He served as the chair of the Ecological Society of America for two years and has won numerous awards for his work in research ecology, mentorship of tribal youth, and civil rights. So without further ado, let's hear from Frank Kanoa Lake on Golden State Naturalist. met up with Frank at the U.S. Forest Service Pacific Southwest Research Station in Arcata, California. We sat in a large second-story conference room with a view of redwood trees right outside the window. Our conversation after a quick break. Welcome back. Today on Golden State Naturalist, we're talking traditional ecological knowledge with Frank Lake. 
here's our conversation from a U.S. Forest Service conference room nestled among the redwoods, starting with a little about Frank and his story. Frank, would you mind introducing yourself real fast? Yeah, my name is Frank Kanawa-Lake. I'm a research ecologist with the USDA Forest Service at the Pacific Southwest Research Station. I happen to be their tribal liaison in the tribal climate change point contact. I also serve as a coordinating scientist with the Western Klamath Restoration Partnership, which is one of the big collaboratives that we have inland. And then also as the Redwood Experimental Forest Research Coordinator for the Experimental Forest on the coast in Klamath by the Yurok Tribal Area. That's a lot of hats. Yeah. And then that's my professional side. Right. And then culturally, um, I'm a mixed descendant of European and indigenous ancestry, mostly identify with the Northwest California tribes, although I'm like Mexican, Indian, and Spanish on my mom's side, and also back East tribes and, and mixed Northern European on my dad's. But identify more as a Karuk descendant, and my half-siblings are Yurok tribal members. And I grew up here in Northwest California, went away to finish eighth grade through high school in Sacramento. Went to University of California, Davis for my undergraduate. There I pursued, because I was jumping around as we get into this topic of my bringing knowledges together. I bounced around between cultural anthropology, environmental science. Mm. They were formulating a new nature and culture program there at the time. I ended up developing my own individual major, integrated ecology and culture with a Native American studies minor. And then I worked fisheries for a few years. Growing up amongst the Yurok fisheries was very important amongst my Yurok family. And I had enough degree courses and time in at UC Davis to qualify as a habitat fish biologist. And then the Forest Service recruited me to the Oregon coast. And I started working on the Sayuslaw National Forest. And then when I graduated in 1995, I was converted to a fish biologist full-time and then worked on the Rogue River National Forest. And then came to Hoopa in 1997 or 8 to be a habitat fish biologist there with them to get more into this closer. Hoopa is an adjacent tribe to Hoopa, adjacent to the Yurok and Karuk, more culturally in this area from being up in Oregon. And for me, kind of my whole life's work from that part of, we'll talk more about the cultural teachings and influences. But that time, going from the management side, we had a big fire in 1999, the mm. Megram fire. And it got me thinking, if I'm going to restore salmon or fisheries, I have to understand bigger dynamics like not so much climate then, but it was more like fire was driving, you know, wildfire, right. and looking from the rivers to the ridges. And as I got more into thinking about how fire as a watershed process affects fish, then it got me into the cultural element of how fire regimes were often presented as a natural fire regime. But there had been this strong assertion or perspective as a child growing up in this community as a fire-dependent culture, how important that was and with government colonization and removal, the native Indian native burning, and especially fire suppression and exclusion, how that had affected the link between fire to vegetation, to water flow, to fisheries. And I thought, okay, I really need to get a bigger understanding and think broader. And so I was recruited to Oregon State University in 2000, and I began my graduate work there in an environmental science program with ecology emphasis. And I really started to roll out what then was like, what's TEK? It's original environmental knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I'd heard a little bit about that, especially from Kat Anderson's work. Mm -hmm. Her Before the Wilderness book came out in 1993. She did a lecture at Davis in 94. I got to know Kat. Kat Anderson wrote a book I've mentioned before on the podcast called Tending the Wild, which discusses indigenous land relationships prior to colonization and, quote, recasts California Indians as active agents of environmental change and stewardship shattering the hunter-gatherer stereotype long perpetuated in the anthropological and historical literature of California, end quote. This book shows the active relationship that people had with the land 
prior to colonization, and debunks the idea that indigenous Californians wandered or foraged randomly. To me, the paradigm shifts in this book are important not only because they convey a more accurate picture of California history, but also because that more accurate picture is foundational to better recognizing the indigenous stewards still here today, and the importance of indigenous stewardship in California both today and into the future. I also recently found out that there's an audiobook, so insert party horn emoji here. I was also influenced by a bit of the professors there that were more in tune with the native stewardship. And from there, I really pursued more of an active research thing for my coursework at, at Corvallis, Oregon State University, and then working down here to interview elders on traditional uses of fire, the effects of fire exclusion and suppression, the legacy of forest management, and really begin to encapsulate more of my broader understanding academically about environmental science, about fire, about watershed processes, somewhat on fish. And then for me, a big element of that was being able to, the different disciplines, be able to begin to articulate scientifically the understanding culturally I was raised with. Mm. Because I think, and even to this day, I feel like there's an important part of my work as a whole in translation, right? And, and being able to take the understanding from like a cultural philosophy and practice or a teaching and say, this is how it applies to management or stewardship, or this is how it wasn't taught in the Western education system for California citizens or at the universities. And that kind of brings us to where we're at today. Fantastic. And so it's almost like, here's all this knowledge and here it is packaged the way that is going to be presentable to this audience, right? And in this, with the correct jargon and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And there's also, it was interesting because talking to, you know, tribal elders like, oh, we're looking at adaptive management. Okay. So what's that mean? It means you're trying to do things better. Okay. We got that. Or, you know, ecosystem services. Hmm. What are those? Everything we derive from the natural environment. And then the tribes are like, well, okay, but we're a human important element of that. And we've been here since time immemorial. We've adapted and evolved through, you know, different climate cycles. They don't say it that way, but you know, through time and since memorial across generations and millennia, we're people of place. So how is that understanding for us as indigenous people conveyed in this topic of understanding, right? Right. In, in particular, what is just not what we can harvest from ecosystems and ecosystem services or what sustainability is. You'll extract as much as you can so the system of point collapse. But the tribal perspective very much as people and having reciprocity for the relations is human services for ecosystems. And changing that narrative that you often got at some of my college courses about, you know, environmentalism, humans have only done death and destruction and de degradation and this yeah. and that. And it's like, well, so where's the positive relationship that humans can have with the environment? Which I think leads us also to part of this, is understanding the way that hasn't been taught, the ways in which indigenous people have modified, enhanced, or changed the environment through their cultural practices, through a lot of different, you know, time and place. And how is that important to understand as we look at human adaptive capacity moving forward in the future, given the types of climate crisis we face now, given some of our paralleled ecosystems and degradation of species and things, like how do we have some form of hope informed by the best available information to guide us to a better place and to where we can have some solutions for our challenges? Right. And I feel like there's so many threads. This is a beautiful introduction for our whole conversation. There's so many threads I want to pick back up yeah. in there. But the first thing I want to get back to is, you know, you talked about your education and as yourself as a young adult going bridging yeah. into adulthood. I'm curious to go back even farther. All right. So when you were little, when yep. you were a little guy, how did you learn your relationship with place? 
Were you exposed to traditional teachings as a young child? Yeah, and at the time I didn't realize how important those were until mm -hmm. I got older. So my, my dad, my mom divorced when I was around five years old. My dad was the one of the founding professors here at Humboldt State University oh, wow. in the Ethnic Studies Department, taught Native American Studies. He was very much in Indian environmental activism and bringing elders and other guest speakers, tribal people in the community to relate the importance of, at that time, we were facing the Gasket-Orleans Road, so a controversial road construction between Gasket on the coast by Crescent City to interior to Orleans that was going to go through sacred sites and key watersheds. There was also the same time I was seeing the burden of conservation being placed on Yurok subsistence fisheries. Mm -hmm. And so I saw my step-uncles and other community members being harassed and the conflict over the fisheries. I also, you know, there was a cultural revival happening around that same time. So for me, it was really interesting to look as a child, the time my dad spent with elders to learn about their cultural knowledge or what we call now indigenous knowledge. He began to get more into the spiritual aspects of that. So my dad remarried a Yurok woman from a very prominent family in the spots on the downriver side of Yurok, coastal part of Rekwal Village, Rekwoy. And at that point, I, as a young five-year-old, being with that family, were visiting elders. We were out collecting acorns. We were trying to go to some of the sacred sites. There was all this other environmental kind of conflict around resource management and stewardship and indigenous rights around that. And so for me, I was quite fortunate because in that teaching and in a visit, in the visiting those places, there's a lot of teachings, right? So my dad wrote a book about Chilula people of the ancient redwoods mm. that was on, and at the time, the extension of Redwood National Park, right? And there were some of the timber companies that were desecrating village sites that became awareness. So it came out of political activism around protection of heritage and cultural resources. But my dad interviewed elders that were over like 90 years old at the time. I, I was there present wow. for that. Elders taking us to what is now River National Park and between like inland from Oric and looking down and saying that was our traditional village and this is the way we managed it. So I was around a lot of that, right? I was around visiting Native people who were activists like the American Indian Movement. But really the part I remember the most for me was being taken to some of these sacred places that are highly biologically diverse, topographically complex, have different kind of, even some have endemic species in them, whether it was along the ocean, the creeks, the river, areas going up ridges, to even the subalpine environments like in the Siskiyou Wilderness or the Marbles or over at Mount Shasta, was taken there and introduced, saying this is who you are, introduce who you are, why you're there, and essentially ask nature to show you what you need to learn and know, right? So there's kind of a cultural teaching that you can learn from your relations to nature or that there's somehow the creator or the spirits will bestow upon you the knowledge and you're asking. For us, it was more around the traditional healing and more like the Indian doctor or the shaman stuff for my family. But that put me around a lot of knowledgeable elders. Right. It put me around a lot of places that have high biodiversity that are sacred sites. It tied together for me a world view of human relationship and kind of the cultural teachings of the creation accounts, how the spirits manifested in the physical beings that are now the rocks, the trees, the wind, the birds, the animals, and the higher concentration of spirits that physically manifested in these physical things from the rocks down to the bugs, that's biodiversity, right? right? That's ecosystem integrity. I was around a lot of that as a child and continued to be. So that frame of reference is how I got into ecology. So you grew up steeped in a mindset already and then developed it as you grew up and continued to, continued to grow. And then began to, as a translator, look at the fields of ecology, environmental science, fisheries, hydrology, wildland fire, and say, this is what they're trying to articulate, or this is what they're addressing. 
but there's not so much of the human element other than contemporary management, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and yet I had known, and where I really got started on this was that David was looking at ritual fisheries management. And so there was a great book also on Kat Anderson's, our chapter, Kat Anderson's book about ritual fisheries management in the Klamath and other areas. And, you know, the tribes had a very sophisticated form of their allocation, coordination between villages on the run coming in. So what type of species? Was it spring Chinook? Was it fall Chinook? Was it coho? Was it summer winter steelhead? Was it the half pounders? Was it sturgeon types of sturgeon? Lamprey <laughs> eel? You know, like all those wasn't being taught in the fisheries management classes. And I'm like, something's wrong here. Fisheries management and wildlife game management didn't start in California at statehood and in the first game commission. It had been pre-existing. Hmm. And to not acknowledge that, that was part of that indigenous erasure or colonial denial that I had faced. And you'll talk to some tribal people and be like, yeah, I was the angry Indian in class where every time they said something, I had to correct a professor. And I went through that. And what I eventually learned is I had to know as much as they had to So when I saw a point of bias or inference made that wasn't accurate because they were assuming something about tribal culture or not even including it, I knew all the Western science had to say on that discipline and topic, and then I can articulate better the tribal perspective. So you had to speak two languages at a master level, essentially, to be able to translate and to inform where this erasure is happening. And especially in a power, power hierarchy of often white older males in academia. I bet who they didn't loved want, being challenged. Who, who didn't yeah. like being questioned, right? Right. right. And be like, all right, we'll substantiate that. Then I would come back the next class mm. and be like, this is all the stuff that you should be aware of. How are you going to study fire and not look at anything on indigenous histories of fire use? How are you going to study fisheries and not do that? How are you going to study forestry and come in with either a John Muir or, or Gifford Pinchot perspective and not look at the effect of traditional management and uses of the forest and all those plants as habitat that you're missing in your conveyance of teaching a whole generation of next managers and politicians and community and public. Absolutely. So that was, that's kind of how I arrived at where I'm at today. Yeah, that's incredible. That's, it seems like a heavy burden for a college student. Yeah, but then also, you know, invisibility. So identified right. more native, even though I'm part Mexican and white, mm-hmm. but you're less than 1% of the student body right. at a large institution, right? Mm-hmm. So, and sometimes the demographics, just as a whole separate thing, like the other, the other is the less percent, which is usually native or indigenous, mm-hmm. right? You're not black, you're not Asian. It's even lower than that number of reporting, right? right. And so for me, it was even as most Native people who've went through higher education or even Western education at universities, like, do I belong here? Hmm. Like, this isn't for me. I don't see myself in this, right? I'm not even on the form. Yeah, yeah. right? So, so that was coming into it. But where I did find was there, you know, like at Davis, there was the Native American Studies Department. I had the professors there that were, you know, very, took me under and knew my father. When I went to Oregon State University, very supportive tribal program there within the graduate school so I had that I had that support, but it didn't come easy. No, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I can think of a wildlife graduate seminar when people settled. I'm thinking, okay, when he settled, and he starts at like 1840 or 50, and I'm just like, so what? All the tribal people, including my ancestors, are non-human, and I just closed my book and walked out. And you could see the professors changing, and I'm like, that's your unconscious bias. Right. So where do I belong in your narrative? I'm out. And if it's not available, then who's the native scholars to write it, to take the his story, 
even natural his story and add a bit more honest reconciliation, clear understanding of humans, including indigenous people, as part of that range of understanding the natural history of a place. Right. The first elected governor of California was a man named Peter Burnett. The ACLU of Northern California has a page that describes Burnett as a former slaveholder from Tennessee with a burning passion to create a whites-only American West, and goes on to give several examples of his white supremacist track record, including attempts to exclude African Americans from the American West, and, quote, Burnett also helped fuel the enslavement and genocide of California's indigenous people. He signed the perversely named Act for the Government and Protection of Indians. This law enabled whites to force Native people from their lands into indentured servitude. While Burnett was governor, U.S. cavalry troops slaughtered Native Californians, including Pomo tribal members, in the Bloody Island Massacre, which occurred on an island in Clear Lake. This story doesn't feel good to hear, but it is an important one. Burnett is representative of the broader historical context of genocide and erasure of indigenous Californians. This erasure happened by design. And when things happen by design, they can also be redesigned. One recent example of this redesign is the push to phase out or replace the fourth grade missions project in California public schools. If you aren't familiar with this project, basically fourth graders choose a California mission and make a model of it out of popsicle sticks, cardboard, sugar cubes, or whatever materials they have on hand. This project was pretty universal when I was a kid, but it lost popularity in more recent years, according to a KTLA article from 2018. This is because people have noticed significant problems with the project. Indigenous scholars and activists have pointed out that by focusing on the architecture of the missions, we overlook the forced labor, disease, and forced assimilation that took place in them. Instead of this project, a group of educators, tribal scholars, and native activists have come together to create a California Indian history curriculum, which includes information on the stories, cultures, and lifeways of eight different tribes across the state. One of the goals of this group is to repeal, replace, and reframe the fourth grade mission project. I'll link that in the show notes in case you want to learn more. So we've been talking so much about these two sides. You've grown up with all of this traditional knowledge and steeped in this community and in these ecosystems and then going to university and having to translate. And I'm curious, kind of, would you make a distinction between traditional ecological knowledge and Western science? Or what is the relationship or the overlap between those two things? Yeah, I think it's a very good clarification point. And I used to not be so set on that distinction, especially when I was starting out. Like, I mean, literally, like, like in the late 90s, Society of Ecological Restoration, Ecological Society of America helped establish their TEK section in like 2001 or two with Robin Kimmer and others. It was just coming emergent, right? So it was this mm -hmm. thing of like, here's traditional ecological knowledge or environmental knowledge, and here's Western science. And it was beginning to be the narrative of how does that indigenous knowledge, now that we're not going to dismiss it as anecdotal, but it might have some relevance to our Western science approaches of studying systems and ecology, now have bearing on what we can learn from it. So in that, it very much was how TEK can inform a, bo a body of Western science. What I see now as I've advanced through a different perspective, and this is just kind of look at for others, our audience, if you're a scientist or a manager, you know, what are the tribes or indigenous communities' researchable questions and science support needs? How are those in line with or not that of the broader society or other non-tribal local community? Because a lot of the Western science that was done was being done through environmental or research needs that were framed from a Western academic 
mm. colonial settler perspective, mm -hmm. right? And so it was setting the research agenda. In some ways, it still does. But as I've worked through coming from more of that perspective of like, this is what I want to learn as a Western trained fire scientist or a forestry about what could be the implications of tribal management or stewardship or fire use on a system. It's now coming to the tribal communities and saying, what are your researchable questions and science support needs? And how has that in the past been marginalized or excluded or not well understood? And then how do those priorities of the tribal or indigenous community relate to some of our crosswalked to the equivalent in society? And when we can find the alignment between those, then we're going to have mutual interest in learning together and creating the best available scientific information to inform management and stewardship to even affect policy formation in that approach. So now I see traditional ecological knowledge. Then there's also, I've written about traditional forest-related knowledge. Mm. I've written with Mary Huffman. She has a great paper on traditional fire knowledge, and she's the director of the Indigenous Peoples Burning Network for TNC. So we still work with her and other tribes. So there's types of like traditional what knowledge, right? But now, based on the White House guidance and the Office of Science, Technology, and Policy, they came out with guidance last fall, which I actually helped participate in and formulate with them, is it's indigenous knowledge. And if you think about indigenous knowledge as being a broader umbrella that ties philosophical and spiritual understandings and also very much grounded in environmental observation and all these other things, then that form of indigenous knowledge is a broader umbrella just above the subtopics of like environmental or ecological knowledge, just as you would have Western knowledge, right? So it's just not discipline specific. It's more inclusive as interdisciplinary multiple methods, right? Or transdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about indigenous knowledge and Western knowledge across different disciplines coming together for really, we have some wicked complex problems today now with the climate and everything else, wildfires. When you bring those knowledges together, they're formulating what the researchable questions are, agreeing on the metrics, what you measure, what are the variables, how you go about collecting that information that's culturally as well as in the Western academic training relevant, how you go about doing your analysis, how you interpret those results, and what is the relation of that study scope of inference for the time in which you study that phenomena or ecological process or that species or that habitat. Mm -hmm. So when you take it to that level, indigenous knowledge informs that whole process. So does Western knowledge, and that creates the science. Amazing. So it's almost, they're working together. They're yes. working together to create Some people say science. integrated. Some people say incorporate. It mm -hmm. used to be you incorporate TEK into Right. But that still had a hierarchy position. Absolutely, right. Yeah. And I was you, you look at my dissertation degree from 2007, incorporation of tertial knowledge into. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But now, especially at the at the National Science and Technology Council under the White House and other groups is this notion of here's indigenous knowledge. And not only do we have a, a federal responsibility to inquire about that and see how it can be informative to our scientific process, it's to be recognized as a also suitable form of understanding and knowledge. And I didn't know that until I reviewed last year that guidance. There's like an evidence act. And then there's also this part of indigenous knowledge is a valid form of scientific evidence. And you used to have kind of a colonial perspective, often from, again, those Western educated scientists or professors who came through colonial land grant institutions or colonial institutions, right? Was that, oh, that traditional knowledge is anecdotal, or it isn't substantiated like our body of knowledge is. And so there was this kind of hierarchy or positionality of it. Mm -hmm. And I see that slowly changing. 
right? I've been, one in part is developing studies that involve indigenous and Western knowledge to create that best available science that now we have a greater informed because even at points like 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I would have a personal communication or have something from a tribe and I would have to cite a scientific study that was similar. And then the journal reviewers would be, it's not appropriate to cite this Western scientific study on this forest species that is also the backs up substantiates. We'll get to that point. <laughs> this form of traditional knowledge. Like, okay, well, then I have to start creating this, the studies that are the, the leading edge of what that work should be. So I co-produce and co-create the best available science so I can now appropriately reference something that draws some indigenous and Western knowledge as a way of understanding and finding. What's so ironic to me is that you're questioning knowledge that people have bet their lives on, yep. right? It's like, would it be incorrect if they have had to depend on this knowledge for their lives, right? And that's, of course we can trust this knowledge. People have depended on it to survive. Like if they wouldn't be here if it wasn't accurate, right? Like that's... But let's bring this around. Yeah. And I'll end on one point and I'll go back to something that's for historical reference. So it's often like, oh, your, your study substantiates traditional knowledge mm -hmm. or indigenous knowledge. No. Did it validate, substantiate? No, but it did collaborate, hmm. if I'm saying the word right, right? Yeah. We, we came together and yeah. it did show that indeed this knowledge is accurate to the way in which we set up our study and investigated that, right? Let's roll back since Spanish settlement, since American settlement and colonization, there was almost 80 to 90% of California population died of disease, genocide, forced removal, relocation, dispossession of land, and then acculturation sent off to boarding schools, and then relocation sent to the cities, what happens to your reservoir of knowledge, right? If you have, seven, if you have lost 80 to 90% of your population who holds that knowledge in the last 150 years, how much of that knowledge reservoir exists in these tribal communities, right? Now we're at where we're at today. We finally recognize that. But why is it important? It's important because... Western science hasn't been able to prevent a climate crisis. It hasn't found a technological fix. It hasn't been able to because of politics, socioeconomic condition, power, and positionality of industry and other factors, government, private sector, all those that haven't allowed Native people to maintain their knowledge systems and practices, who haven't allowed Native people to have closer ties and access and steward their indigenous homelands that are now national forests, federal lands, national parks, state parks, private industrial land, private property, or county or other lands, right? Mm -hmm. So look at what have been the factors that have reduced the body of available knowledge. And then now look at a point where society is coming to indigenous people and saying, could you help us with solutions? Because now we're imperiled and now we're at lack of system collapse. We don't have enough water. Forests are burning up beyond what we could possibly manage, right? It's kind of, I just want people to reflect on that, right? For a long, last four generations or so, 150 years, your knowledge hasn't been important. You've been not important to the conversation about solutions. And now because our broader society is getting burned up and over, running out of water, has forms of insecurity, has instability, we're coming to you to ask us how to finally solve this. Slap in the face. And, and more importantly, we're coming at it from a colonial Western society perspective that's extractive. 
we need your knowledge for us, not how can we partner to empower you to maintain the knowledge you have, to regain it for the aspects that you need to, that then can be a benefit not only to the tribal community, but also to society and the local public. Right. What are your goals? Yep. How do we help you reach your goals while also learning yep. from what you know? So in many tribal people, it's not enough that they took the land, took the gold, took the timber, took the water, and took the fish. Now they're taking the knowledge, right? That's that. And so you have to remember from indigenous people who are, are willing or not to share their knowledge, mm-hmm. what's in it for them, right? right? What's, and I don't mean it like in a way like that. I mean, where's the reciprocity? Something I've struggled with in the past couple of years making this podcast has been trying to determine how to respectfully approach Indigenous Californians for interviews. Because I recognize that asking for information and then sharing it as broadly as I can could be one more form of extraction in a long line of abuses. At the same time, I also recognize that including Indigenous voices is a vital part of telling the story and the ecology of this place I love. This place that has only been called California for a relatively very short period of time. That story is incomplete without the input of people from many tribes, each with their own distinct identities throughout the state. And to tell that incomplete story could be yet another example of erasure of Indigenous history, which is the vast majority of the history of the state and erasure of the Indigenous people still here today. So I don't have this balance totally figured out yet. But Frank will share some ideas later about approaching tribes and tribal people in a way that partners with their goals rather than coming in and just asking for knowledge, which I find very helpful in informing how to make this podcast going forward. And it will also be helpful in a lot of different situations. So keep listening for those ideas in a minute. And then as I'm trying to do now is to educate otherwise ignorant population or who has an unconscious bias that in other ways have been a form of marginalization and erasure for indigenous knowledge and culture. Mm-hmm. It's so much. I carry that burden every second of my life. Every tribal person you talk to who's in resource management or some part of that has a angst of urgency because time is running out. Some things we can capture data and store it. When an elder passes away, you lose intangible and tangible elements of a body of knowledge that could have been one of the most critical things to help you figure out that ecological system and for a way for humanity to be able to proceed forward with some certainty of understanding what's currently happening and where it's likely projected to be, which isn't going to be much better. So that's, so that's, I mean, those are some of the challenges I see that face tribal communities today about the appropriation of their knowledge or the co-opting of it. Right. Even to myself as a forest service scientist who is a tribal person, I've been criticized that I help foster part of the co-option because it should be the tribes as sovereigns who contribute their knowledge and who guide and who lead that. But for me as a person who then contributes my own intellectual property and knowledge as a forest service scientist, in some ways it can be conveyed or come across, oh, the forest service is doing that great TEK work. Mm. right right or is it in partnership with the tribe and that's and that's the next emergent area right so where do we for tribal people who are western academically trained and have a body of traditional knowledge or indigenous knowledge it's called two-eyed seeing you see the best of indigenous knowledge and the best of western knowledge 
to address the challenge or the problem, but you use two forms of knowing and understanding to come up with a solution. Hmm. And it's stronger than each on their own. Right. And so you can do it through individuals or you can do it through collaboratives and through partnerships that bring that brain trust together to bring that reservoir of knowledge who then tackle some very, some very important things that we have to be upfront and right on. Right. And I think that the vast majority of my audience is not indigenous. And so for any of us who are wanting to learn more and wanting to work with tribes and wanting to kind of have more of a relationship with place, right? Would you say, and I think you touched on this a little bit, would you say that the approach would be, if we want to work with tribes, approaching from a perspective of what do you need? And can we work together and then also can I learn from you at the same time is that like the approach that you would recommend yeah, or what would you say and I'll, and I'll use conservation as a as a nexus right? right so we know that development all these other things are threats to wild places yes or natural areas so we have a common interest in preserving the integrity of those places because of all the benefits and that they may have for society and for the local communities and for nature itself and so within that if you say we're worried about the loss of this important species, pick a plant, for example. I'll use a, I'll use a lily, right? Okay. So we're in some ways going to conserve that area, but we're not going to allow people to come in and manipulate, harvest it, prune it, till mm. it. Mm. Yet that rare lily may be found on that state park, which is founded upon a village, and that lily might be a remnant part of an ancestral garden of Indian potato that was once a very common food, for the tribe living there. But because of the removal, the lack of burning, the lack of tilling, fire exclusion suppression, changes in opportunity for tribal people to cultivate and manage that, it doesn't have a steward and protector. The only protector is a stay out fence mm. or a, a land policy park otherwise that says it's conserved, don't do nothing to it. And yet the tribal perspective is I hear philosophical teaching and how you operationalize that is, you know, if you don't use these resources and, and interact with your relations, again, that cultural belief might be from a tribe that that lily was a spirit that physically manifested in the physical form. It's found there. The place might even be named off of it. It's human accountability and living with and stewarding rather than maybe a conservation one is that you just protect it from all these grazing, development, municipal water waste, whatever it might be, right? right. You protect it, but it's not maintaining the other aspects of that species life history that looks at some form of the disturbance, like redistributing the scales to burning to open up bare soil for, for seed set to maintaining a body of pollinators that help that, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe even that lily is important in a tribal name for girls. And there's like a girl's coming of age story where that flower is needed as part of her head wreath in that regalia. And so without that, she has a hard time coming to age and recognizing her relationship as what would have been a traditional root digger to that lily, to that place, and to protect it and maintain it. Mm -hmm. And to anything, before you harvest the tribal notion or philosophy or tenet, it has the right to reproduce, thrive, and maintain. Mm -hmm. And your stewardship role is to make sure you facilitate that. But if you're not allowed to access that because it's closed for protection, that disassociates a prior multi-generational millennia relationship of why that plant is found where it is already maybe as a unique endemic but definitely knowing the tribal people that i know and how to pay attention to things you recognize those uniqueness things right mm -hmm. back to my teaching about sacred areas and endemism there are certain things that are recognized you might not know the subspecies or variety name of it but you recognize it as that's found there right 
as a food, medicine, and material, cultural use species for ceremonies or spiritual, you know, things of nature. But, so, like, it's found there. And also, here's all these ways that we have a relationship with it. Yes. And that relationship, based on indigenous knowledge, informs us about its habitat needs, its population viability requirements, what it takes to have some form of use, but also some form of protection. Absolutely. And I think that this brings me back to kind of a question of, you know, we have this Western mentality of in order to conserve something, fence it off, put a fence around it. But I kind of want to dig back into pre-colonial history and talk about, you know, we have this misconception. It's a very widespread misconception about California being a wilderness pre-colonialism. And so how would you help people correct that notion? Like what was it really like? Well, think of people being here for at least, you know, we keep finding long archaeological stuff. So 13,000, now 20,000, right? So tribes will say since time immemorial. But in California, as an ecosystem, many ecosystems, right? In this diversity and spectrum from north to south, coastal to interior, across the different coast ranges, interior valleys, Sierras, Cascades, whatever, other transverse range, whatever it might be across California, deserts, Great Basin side, those have always had some climatic change, right? Mm -hmm. Native people have migrated in and out. There's been linguistic and genetic and cultural diversity through time. Think of that through thousands of years of generation, through different climate shifts as we know, as we reconstruct that. And think at the time of like 1700, where there was a very strong functioning tribal culture. There had been some influence probably from some disease or some things that came from the, the East over because of trade, but still pretty much larger populations and quite intensive use of areas where we have our same population centers now, right? Large valleys, foothills by creeks that have fresh water and areas that produce access to a variety of plants and animals and other resources for food and for material and for fiber. What we don't understand so much because it's not taught in the books was that within those cultures, there was very sophisticated forms of governance. There was also very sophisticated forms of resource allocation, even between tribes that might be different linguistic groups who have mm -hmm. different histories. Some migrated in, some migrated out, some now established at the time of like contact in 1840 or whatever it was, or that late 1700s. It was, you know, tribal culture, but even within them, there's diversity. And within that... There's often this notion that Ken Anderson used and others is called proto-agriculture, like before agriculture. Like if they were using fire as an energetically effective tool to manage a range of vegetation from even nearshore rocks out off the ocean, coastal headlands, the coast ranges across redwood forest to the oak woodland band and prairies to the interior valleys up through the Sierra and Klamath fronts of the mixed vegetation evergreen forest, even up to the subhypine trufer forest, right? Each of those, effective for fire use, where lightning wasn't adequate, tribes had knowledge about burning on a certain frequency, seasonality, even diversifying more than lightning, different seasons, and specificity of if it wasn't adequately burned by lightning, then you burned it based on a series of cultural indicators about resource production and access and in the condition of it. So that was all in the play. Also, if tribes were using all those areas from the intertidal to the subalpine environment as part of their hardware store, supermarket, pharmacy, and sacred places as their church and ceremonial areas, there was a whole part of the landscape that had high value. And those were either managed at the family level, families within villages, intermarriage between different villages, between tribes. But there was a system of stewardship that was coordinated. And I don't want to like overpaint a picture of like this greatness, 
But we know from looking at our past paleoclimate, fire history, archaeological, there was a lot of richness. There was functionality in that part of the narrative in the wilderness, to get back to this point, mm -hmm. wasn't understood. The first settlers couldn't, they might have ascribed Indians burning for a reason, but didn't know the outcome of what it meant on oak-dominated woodlands. And by knocking acorns off with the pole, it caused tip pruning that then diversified and increased the abundance of acorns. So it went from being X numbers of tons of acorns to being twice that. Right. Or that the sea of wildflowers that were outside of in the swales and the places where this geophyte, that herb or forb for medicine, this shrub for basketry material, this other one for tools and for musical instruments like elderberry, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a part of a colonizer settler construct who didn't understand the sophistication of native people that came from like, as they expanded, also a way to dehumanize native people because that way you could kill them easier. You could dispossess them of their land. And so all that narrative of wilderness, nature, native people didn't have, they just lived off the land and wandered. That was all part of that colonial narrative that went into justification to kill them and remove them so then the settlers could occupy and colonize the most productive land. Justification. Yes. And, you know, the first Spanish law by Aguilo was like, you know, prevent native Indian heathen burning, right? Subjugate them, enslave them, right? The other atrocities were to, at the time of the Civil War, were to the militia groups who were run by the timber barons and other private interests finance that were then reimbursed by the state and the feds that were getting bounties for Indian men, raping and taking women, and enslaving children. We often think of California as a free state, but this perspective considers only California's constitutional ban on slavery and not the way that ban was applied or not applied. It also doesn't consider other laws that directly contradicted the ban. There's a whole book on this published just last year called California, a Slave State by Gene Falzer, in case you want to learn more. Those are the survivors who you're wanting your knowledge from now to how to live in that place. Those are those places that we call wilderness that were between tribal territories that had international trails. And I was called out by this once by Oregon State Professor. What do you mean international trails? If you're mm. this group who speaks this language and has this cultural affiliation and this one over here, and you go between nation and nation, it's international. If we look at the same trail system that went between France to this country and that country, it's international. If we take the same geographic area of a 500 square mile or whatever it is, and you put it here, it's international, right? So somehow in the American psyche, it was portrayed that this was wilderness. Native people didn't have an effect on it. They weren't responsible for the diversity that were filling the riches of the settlers. And it somehow justified that that could do that. Right. And then then we what are colonial land grant institutions? They're formed by the wealthiest for education on indigenous lands that were stolen. And then it promoted within those early science, forestry, agriculture classes, a Western European notion of what management should be in grids and this. They didn't have the ability because they didn't stop to learn and ask what they assumed to be natural was actually the byproduct of, of intense cultural adaptation and indigenization of place through millennia and generations. And that's the narrative that wasn't taught. And that's the narrative that's barely understood now. Right. How are these practices still continuing today, despite all that? Well, tribal people very much talk about knowledge as a responsibility and more importantly, a spiritual and cultural obligation 
to care for your family, which includes the natural environment around you, and all those species that are your foods, your medicines, and your materials, right? And so what partly is going from that philosophy and kind of a tenant of being an indigenous person to that area is how to we as non-tribal or non-indigenous partners, cooperators, help foster that opportunity. So when we talk about restoration, and I've read about this in my Forest Landscape Restoration book, is you know how do we define degradation? If degradation is, is defined by a Western colonial settler construct and not degradation as a removal of tribal stewardship and a decoupling of mutualism by indigenous people on place and species, people are like, how dare you use mutualism in the context of native people? How many different climate epics have, episodes have we been through in the last 20,000 years that changed from this to that to this to that to where we're at now? And we had an ice age. Yeah, right? Yeah. People here before that we're yeah. seeing now, yeah. right? Yeah. And they immigrated, migrated in, migrated out, and then others came in, same out, some stayed, some went, right? Right. But that's the kind of depth of time, right? So to bring that all back to today is indigenous people want to be able to have access to their homelands, which is part of that land back aspect. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, they need to have cooperators and partners who kind of get it. Again, I call it the form of reconciliation to understand what's happened and not to like hold that guilt, not have settler fragility about facing some of the hard truths that have been a process that leads to your position of privilege and where you're at. Have that be a form of repatriation or rematriation for returning land and cultural practices within that tribe's territory for those people to begin to even regain their own knowledge and cultural practice. Some of these ceremonies, some of these practices haven't been able to carry on. The knowledge is there, but then there has to be that opportunity to then enact it, to pursue it. That leads to restoration, which is something that we all want. And rather than looking at a historical baseline that we kind of understand and we can say that's some desired future conditions, that helps us kind of like map out and chart where we want to be for that restoration approach. And then for tribes, it's very much a revitalization to be able to be not only just brought in as partners, but in some ways to have that sovereignty in the decision-making to be able to voice what they want for the actions that will take place within their ancestral territories that can be across jurisdictions. It can be federal lands, state national park. It can be state lands. It can be even private lands. There's, you know, things of NGOs, non-governmental organizations or conservancies that have land. That's an opportunity there. Again, a lot of these places that were settled were some of the most precious areas to tribes. And so having that ability to access those again is important, right? It might be really important for them to access a sacred site at a very biologically diverse area to have concurrent with that, the repatriation of a ceremony that goes along with active restoration, getting your hands on the ground and working together. Right. I love that. And in order to be supportive of that work, like, how do you think, do you think that it would be helpful if people are like, hey, do you need volunteer help? Or would it be more helpful to just be like, go do some learning? It's tough. I often get people as well, you know, there's not many people or if I see the casino or this or that, like, so how is in our Western California society, how are tribes portrayed? Right. And then how do you access them? There are opportunities for this. So mm -hmm. The California Indian Basket Weavers Association has an annual meeting usually in June. They also have other regional workshops. That's a great way to go out and talk to the basket weavers from different tribes about what are facing them for natural resource management and, and interests around species, particularly plants for basketry and for foods and for that material culture part of it. Many tribes have sovereignty days or certain open to the public events. That's another great way. Many tribes are starting to have their own tribal museums. 
that are usually curators or tribal people that are from there that would be more than happy to share with you all the items that are in there from baskets to nets to tools to regalia and develop that relationship. Or, you know, for many tribes now because of the funding, you see a lot of requests for proposals coming out for tribes to be as a partner, as a higher criteria for award. They're getting bombarded with requests mm-hmm. from everything from National Science Foundation to Climate Adaptation Science Centers and others, right? But approaching the tribe to say, this is my interest. Is this in line with yours? Or what is yours that I may learn of? So then I can come and wanting to work with you. And this is what I can come with. And if you find that a value, then maybe, you know, your priority will align with my priority and interest and we can formulate a partnership. Right. Right. So, but then understand also all that's in the context of a tribal governance, tribal departments, tribal programs, individuals. Some are actually by tribal people who are tribal from that area or other tribes. And some are also Western education folks that are non-tribal that are working for the tribe who are themselves learning about cultural history, community values, and, and working within a tribe. Right. And like you said, I mean, we're talking about nations, right? And yep. and how many nations within what is now known as California, yep. there's going to be a lot of individuality and a lot of individual tribal structures yes. and goals and yep. <laughs> so many things, right? And, so. and just because they're living in the same area, same watershed, those tribes as sovereign governments may not necessarily see well together on certain mm-hmm. things, right? And in that regard, you know, we have to go, for me, I say, we need to look at changing from being perceived competitors of a scarce resource to work to be cooperators for abundance. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. Right? That's beautiful. Because we all perceive that something's limited mm-hmm. or that it's rare or that it's degraded. And so there's this perception of competition, right? And then with that, what do we easily hold back is our knowledge and our ability to support and capacity resources because we're uncertain about what we may lose if we try and what we might gain. But if we come at it where we each come with something of use and a value and we work together to find out what that is and to increase capacity, then we can work towards being cooperators for abundance, right? We don't have to fight over the water. We don't have to fight over the last beautiful place that we either want to recreate or go subsistence gather in, right? We can find ways that we can live together. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need right now more than anything. And create more places that are places of abundance, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Right? And so it may be when you're going to your next state park, you might see tribal families out there digging some stuff up. They might be harvesting an animal, right? But to change that narrative of what is the appropriate place for California Native people to reoccupy their traditional territories, not one that's biased and determined by colonial settlers, but one that's determined in part by the tribes as sovereigns that we learn to understand We learn to appreciate because we maybe didn't understand there was a different way to achieve what we want for conservation and for restoration in this going this tribal route of partnership and sovereignty and co-governance and co-stewardship can still help us achieve that. Right. Be open to new opportunity. I love that. Open to new opportunity and partners for abundance. Those are huge takeaways and I really appreciate both of them. Becoming partners for abundance is much more achievable if we understand more about how abundance was cultivated historically by Native people and why we need to include these impacts in our basic ecological assumptions. But, you know, again, that back to that wilderness notion, right? Right. So when I talked about the colonial land-grant institutions and how they set up those education centers 
for the more elite of the American society at the time, right? Because it was also very classist between working class and the wealthier elite who could go get a Western education and who became your doctors, your lawyers, your governors and your political, right? So to me, when I came up with this last couple of years back was like the colonial null hypothesis was that there was no indigenous influence, right? It's, and I laugh at it because like the null hypothesis of science is that there's no effect. And then from there you do treatments to see what the effect is, <laughs> right? But the colonial null hypothesis and applied to like native influence or impacts on landscapes and ecology was that they didn't, right? And then again, that fostered back to that notion and so for me, even to bring that out as an idea is what if we turn that around and assumed that Native people had a degree of influence and effect on biodiversity, on fire regimes, did indeed modify the extreme ranges of the climate, particularly where there's drought and water stress. And we see that through some of the studies that have come out now looking at where climate was a top-down factor on fire. And actually, it was more bottom-up hmm. because it was the frequency and use of indigenous fire as part of that cultural fire regime that buffered what would be the climatic severity or magnitude of effect. To understand that is a way then to help us position as a human adaptive capacity that's led by indigenous knowledge and in partnership with tribes to give us more actionable solutions. And, and for me as a scientist is to be, well, we know native people managed oaks. So what does it look like to manage oaks at this scale of orchards? That's another way of framing it, right? So I started telling people, hey, these legacy oak-dominated forests, as ecologists are calling them, or botanists. I'm like, no, those are oak orchards. You know, that's by the village area or a camp. You have the artifacts for food processing, like the hopper stones, the mortars. Like everything to me is an orchard. The architecture of the tree, a full open crown oak, a lot of branches, big, huge trunk, small fire cavity at the base. The pine next to it has a frequency medium fire return interval of every seven to eight years. They were using fire and horticultural pruning to manage acorns, which was the basis of the food web and that place that fed native people, fed deer, elk, squirrels, jays, towhees, everything, right? And to me, like just even reframing things that we would ascribe as more natural to really look at the proportion of the landscape. Again, the null hypothesis being that they didn't manage, but let's ask what partly did they, right? And so that's been part of my work is to look at what parts of the landscape were more intensively managed, what were further out, and then we can begin to get a better idea of even today how much nature will manage itself and how much we can intervene in a way that will help support a natural process of recovery, right? Passive versus active restoration and what degree in which that human adaptive capacity and our, through our partnerships and through our collaboratives can help us to a point where we have intensive investments like a lot of money coming down for forestry and for fire risk reduction or some that we can look at. This needs to have certain restrictions on the types of management and to reduce the forms of disturbance or the amount of degradation factors that then help that recover. It's checking those absolute baseline invisible assumptions. Assumptions that people have taken for granted, right? And then flipping that null hypothesis completely on its head. And how does that then from the ground up change the rest of the entire work that yeah. you're doing? And I also think I've heard people come back and say, well, you know, there's so many more people in California now and areas are urbanized and this, this and that. And I'm like, yeah, but you still have a city park. You still have a state park. You still have an area of green space. You know, what about like the lonely people in San Francisco Bay Area who are just looking for any place that isn't concrete or contaminated soil to have a place to start to bring back 
their traditional foods. Two of the Ohlone people working to bring back and sustain traditional Ohlone foods are Vincent Medina and Louis Trevino, who started Cafe Ohlone in Berkeley. Their website explains that Cafe Ohlone has always been a one-of-a-kind culinary and educational experience. Every meal of luxurious Ohlone cuisine educates the public about our rich, enduring culture. They include all kinds of traditional foods, like black acorn soup, bay nut truffles, Ohlone salads, seared venison backstrap, and so many more. They'll be reopening in the spring, so make sure to search for Cafe Ohlone and check out their website before you plan a visit. And while we're on the topic of traditional Ohlone foods, the common name of Claytonia perfoliata has changed from miner's lettuce to rore. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm totally just trying to copy the way I heard Vincent Medina say it in a YouTube video. And since this plant is delicious and abundant and has a wide distribution across the state, it's very much worth looking up if you're not familiar with it. Just make sure if you do harvest any, that you're in a place where that's okay, and that you follow the principles of the honorable harvest described in the foraging episode. So if you want to see it on Calscape, the name is Rore, spelled R-O-O-R-E-H. Okay, back to what Frank was saying about what the Ohlone people are working toward. To recover a sacred space on a mountain peak that now that you've taken down the cell tower or whatever it might be, right? I mean, there's all these things of how we have colonized and settled California as a broader society that in some ways as part of our restoration strategy, climate adaptation, living with wildfire, addressing that, that we can learn from the local native people there as a way that might be an appropriate way of having more inclusion for indigenous people, but also, again, would achieve some of the similar values and similar interests, public safety that we want for the rest of the community living with them. Absolutely. And and this is something where there can be a particular mentality sometimes where it's almost like, oh, well, it's, it's like, let's do this because it's the right thing to do. Well, it's like it's also a very mutually beneficial thing to do, right? Yes, it's the right thing to do, but everyone there benefits. Yeah. And the whole globe benefits from every local action that restores an ecosystem, yeah. right? And so the fact that we are all woven together in this cloth, yeah. right? Like. Yeah. I mean, I see that very powerfully, and I think that it, there's a huge incentive for all of us to make amends, right? Yeah. yeah. I also wanted to go back to a point about the willingness of Native people or tribal people to share their indigenous knowledge, right? So it can be extractive. We're coming like, we want this for this reason. Mm-hmm. As a scientist, as a manager, as a, someone interested working for an organization or agency, the other part of that is to be okay with not needing to know it all, Mm. right? So I often find, as I got back to when I alluded earlier, was, you know, knowledge is a responsibility. There are certain things within tribal communities, ceremonial practices, certain responsibilities that are specific to that family or to that individual. And you as someone who maybe who's looking at doing a burn at a state park doesn't need to know all the details about why or how that was used. Mm. What you need to know is there's these certain ways in which you're going to do your fire treatment or you're going to do your thinning, the plants you're looking to restore, but you don't really need to know the medicinal plants, the sacred beliefs and songs around them. There's a form of like appropriate knowledge that you can be shared. And the other ones, and especially in a society where we demand or expect that things come to us because we want it, to be more respective of indigenous censorship and what they choose or not to share and relinquish as far as the farmer's information. And that's even a challenge I find as a scientist between 
things on data sovereignty and governance between things that were public domain. Well, anthropologists during the time of like late 1880s to 1920, especially from the University of California system, were out collecting as much information as they could on the vanishing Indian, right? So there were people who were pretty much just saw their families and villages decimated. They're survivors of all that smallpox, genocide, force removal, you know. So they were sharing their information. Some of that information, even though I like to go back because it's in the archives, tribes may or may not want certain details disclosed, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so there's also this part of respectful understanding about why, even though it's publicly available in one resource, understanding why tribes do or do not want certain things shared at what level of specificity. And for you working with them on a project, be okay with that. You may not need to know everything, right? Right. But this is what you can do and for what you need to know for the way of your support and engagement as a partner. I love that. Yeah. Another important thing, I see this and I mentioned this in my Flora interview, but, you know, indigenous place names. There's a lot of tribes who are wanting to come back. Just not around the land back part, like the land acknowledgement. Well, there's a land land acknowledgement, but also like this place is called Gudini, if I said it right, in the Wiat. We're here, a place amongst the redwoods. The old Wiat village is right down the hill here at the bottom of the creek by the vill- by the bay. But this was that place name, right? This was that space. To, even if I don't say it right, if I'm asked by my tribal partner to say an indigenous name, try it. Yeah. Right? Show that willingness. If the place or project area is named after the settler who massacred and killed and raped their great-grandmothers, why keep saying that settler's right. name, right? right. The, the, the state park name. Like, they just changed from Patrick's Point to Sumig Village out here at the state park. There's a reason why that name change is important. And to understand the antiquity of Yurok occupancy at that site, as well as Yurok interest in it now. If you're ever in Humboldt County and get the chance, definitely visit Sumig State Park. It has a reconstructed traditional Yurok village with buildings that are set partially underground. It is so cool, and exploring it with my kids was one of the highlights of my trip to Humboldt last spring. Here's a little more information on the village from the Sume State Park brochure. In 1990, an all-Yurok crew constructed Sume Village, which consists of three typical redwood plank family houses, a sweat house, a dance pit, three changing houses, and a redwood canoe. All of these structures are made from boards split from redwood trees using hazel bindings and local stone. The village was named Sume, which means forever in Yurok, in the hope that the village would endure for generations to come. The village site is used for cultural and educational activities that preserve the heritage of several neighboring tribes, Yurok, Karuk, and Hupa. The park's native plant garden just south of the Sume village features plants used by the Yurok for basket making, food, medicinal, and ceremonial purposes. So those are all those minor things that just aren't feel good, but they're a way of acknowledging what the tribe or your tribal community you're working with is on the relevance of what are some of their trauma and to have that healing. And we need healing to be able to work together and have each other's back if we're going to be facing some of the climate crisis and other challenges we have ahead of us. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Frank. I really appreciate your time. So the next time you step outside, take a moment to look around and notice your surroundings. Because wherever you are in California, that very place was almost certainly stewarded and shaped by Native people who are still here today over tens of thousands of years. I hope for each of us that this understanding can become part of our expanded awareness of place and that we can find meaningful and authentic ways to live each day in reciprocity with the land and with each other.
I want to thank Frank for making time in his incredibly busy schedule for this conversation and for teaching me so much. And thank you there in your car or folding your laundry for listening, rating, reviewing, Patreoning, sharing, and learning along with me. You're the best. And if you listen to the end of the episode, I always share something interesting or mundane or embarrassing from my week. And this week, it's that I went hiking and got caught in a rainstorm. And I had checked the forecast, so I knew that much of my hike would be dry and then it would likely start raining at some point. So I wasn't worried about it. I don't mind a bit of rain on a hike. What was alarming was when there was unforecasted thunder that sounded like it was right over my head. And I can never remember if you're supposed to be next to a tree or not next to a tree in a thunderstorm. So I just scampered back toward my car as fast as I could. And at one point, the thunder seemed farther away. So I thought maybe I'd have time to use the porta potty on the way back. But then there was another boom right over my head. So I just held it and bolted, hopefully faster than the lightning that was on my heels. Finally, I rounded the last corner in the trail and the sky opened up and absolutely dumped water on me right as I jumped into the car. As soon as I was in, the rain turned into hail. So obviously I had a small laughing fit and then very happily cranked up my car heater and started to dry off. But in case you're like me, and you also don't know what to do if you're caught in a surprise thunderstorm, I looked it up for us. First, if possible, get indoors or into a car with the windows up. That's the safest thing to do. If that's not an option, the CDC tells me never to be near an isolated tree. But if you're in a forest, to shelter near lower trees. There are also a bunch more tips on this page, so I'll link that in the show notes. Okay, that's it for this one. I'll catch you soon on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to the song as well as the Creative Commons license in the show notes.